Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you all and to see some familiar faces. I want to begin with a question. Do you remember a time when you were afraid of the dark? You probably have to think back to your childhood, or maybe you don't, and I, I, won't, I won't go there. Uh, maybe you were a child, but uh, maybe you still are afraid of the dark. But in the house where I grew up, the boiler room was right outside my bedroom, and I could hear the furnace click on in the middle of the night. My bedroom was pitch black, and so when that furnace clicked on, and it was this uh, you know, rumbling noise, it sounded kind of like an animal, I imagined what sort of monsters there might be lurking there in the dark where I couldn't see. So years later, I won't say how many years later, when the Pixar movie Monsters, Inc. came out, which is now a family favorite, it brought back those childhood memories, but, but in a pleasant kind of way because it's funny, you know, has a touch of humor. And in this movie, if you're familiar with it, monsters sneak into children's bedrooms and scare them to collect their screams. And these screams are a power source for their city of Monstropolis. The monsters need the darkness to do their scaring because if you were actually to see them as they are, they don't look very scary. In the dark... A shirt hanging over a chair with the arm of the shirt waving in the breeze that's coming through the window is distorted and becomes a monster. When a room is dark, objects are there, but we either can't see them right or we can't see them at all. We need light to see. It's science. When we turn on the light... The monsters are exposed, or the monsters are exposed, because we can see the room as it really is. In John's gospel, Jesus is the light that illuminates the darkness so that we can see the world as it really is. And we can see God for who he really is. Now, John's unique when we compare this gospel to the other gospels. John has stories like the raising of Lazarus and Jesus washing the disciples' feet that aren't found in any other gospel. But John also doesn't have stories that we might associate with our knowledge of Jesus. There's no temptation account. There's no narration of Jesus' baptism. There's no calling of the 12 disciples. They're just assumed. They're just kind of there, but we're not told how they get there. Uh, there's no transfiguration. There's no Lord's Supper. There are no exorcisms, and there are no parables. Jesus rarely mentions the kingdom of God just a handful of times. And the kingdom of God is a staple of Jesus' preaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A commentator, Mark Allen Powell, quipped that instead of talking about the kingdom of God or the Mosaic law, Jesus primarily talks about himself. Jesus says things like, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the way and the truth 
and the life. John's Jesus is the source of light and life. He exposes the world, shows the world for what it is, and he shows God for who he is. Jesus illuminates the darkness so that we can see the world as it really is and so that we can find our way to God. We can see the light along the path. But in doing this, John leaves us with a decision. You might have heard that there's dualism in John, and what this means is, is John, there's, there's black and white in John. John doesn't leave us uh, with uh, muddy waters wondering uh, where he stands or uh, leaving us thinking, well, um, I'm not sure where, where he is with this, and I can just go have a think. Well, you're going to have a think. John leaves us with a decision to make. You choose light or darkness. You choose truth or lies. You choose salvation or condemnation, life or death. And as you begin this series on the Gospel of John, I'd like to introduce it today by looking at the prologue, which is in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And we're going to look at how John introduces Jesus as the source of light and life. Because these are key themes that John is going to just work through the entire gospel. And they're key for understanding who Jesus is. And so I'm going to read the prologue right now. Woo! And try not to drop this. It's here. Okay. So John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, God, was with God... And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray together. Our great and good God, 
We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that in Jesus, you have given us a light so that we might see you. Enlighten our hearts and our minds this morning so that we might see you and see Jesus in your word and so that we might know how to respond. Amen. I'd like to begin with a little bit of background. Uh, John probably was writing in a context of conflict. Uh, We don't know that he was writing to a particular church. Um, Perhaps uh, he had Christians in general in mind, but he probably was thinking about uh, a, a conflict with Jews. And we think this, or scholars think this, because as you work through John over the coming weeks, you're going to notice that John refers to the Jews a lot, okay? 71 times, in fact. The Synoptic Gospels, which is uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only use the Jews 16 times among them. So that's a big difference. In John, the Jews are Jesus' biggest opponents, And Jesus has some pretty harsh things to say to them and about them. And there are some who've wondered if John's focus on the Jews means that he's anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. But I don't think this is so. And I think sometimes this may be importing some uh, modern controversies back into the first century world. I think what we're seeing in John is an insider conflict. And what I mean by this is that John is writing about the Jewish Messiah. He constantly refers to the Jewish scriptures and Jewish feast days like the Passover. He is a Jew himself, writing to fellow Jews about how to conceive of and worship their God. The members of the local synagogue, for example, would have agreed with John. They would have agreed together that the one true creator God deserves their praise. But John would have fallen out with his fellow Jews over his worship of Jesus. So when Jesus says things like, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When he says, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection of the life, and I am the way and the truth and the life. We're going to see a little more in a moment that Jesus is talking like God. But with a twist, the world as it really is, is a world in which Jesus and the Father are one. This is what John tells us. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he says, before Abraham was, I am, using the very words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus' opponents, the Jews, take this as a a proclamation of his divinity, and they seek to stone him. They know what he's claiming. So when Jesus shines his light to show the world as it really is, and to show God who he really is, many people don't like what they can now See, for them, this isn't supposed to be what the world looks like. And this isn't supposed to be what God looks like. And so they prefer 
to return to the darkness. So now I'd like to look at the text. I've already read it, so we're going to walk through it together. You can refer to your Bibles if you wish. John's prologue, again, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, it provides a key for unlocking everything else in the gospel. It's called a prologue because it's, it's set apart from the rest of the action that follows it. And a prologue, this prologue, like other prologues that you may have come across, gives crucial information for making sense of the story he's about to tell. If we were to miss it, we would be like people who shuffle in late to a theater and have missed the opening scene and can't make sense of the rest of the action. Uh, You've come across a prologue before if you've read Romeo and Juliet. The prologue sets the stage for the entire play. The chorus enters and tells the backstory of two warring households who create star-crossed lovers. John's prologue sets the stage for the entire gospel by telling the backstory of a loving God who is the source of light and life. In the prologue, the creation of the world is the setting for this backstory. And so in the first three verses, I will reread this. We read, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in, be- in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. And in the context, as we read, it becomes evident that the word is Jesus. John has Genesis in mind. And I want to look at why, why does John call, start with the word and not just say Jesus was in the beginning, okay? John has Genesis in mind. Uh, This is evident because he starts with uh, the same words that we find at the beginning of Genesis, where Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John is giving a gesture to Genesis. Uh, This Word, word, or this term word, is a word that we find in ancient Greek literature. Uh, It's the word logos. And this is uh, the instrument for the creation of the universe in Greek thought. But it also connects Jesus to the instrument of creation in the biblical story. And so Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So by calling Jesus the word, John is connecting to his whole audience, uh, both Jews and Greeks, and showing them or depicting Jesus as the instrument of creation. John's making a provocative statement to his whole audience that Jesus is part of the very being of God. This is the pre-existent word who was with God and who was God. John is beginning to shine a light to show the world as it is and God as he is. And God as he is involves Jesus being in the very makeup of God and instrumental of the creation of the world. This backstory, though, the backstory of creation doesn't just say something about who Jesus is. It also says something important about what he does. 
Jesus has the power to create new life by illuminating a dark world, just like at the creation of the world when God said, let there be light. So in verses four and five, we read this in him, in this word that was at the beginning, uh, at creation in him was life in him was life. Do you hear that? And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John is making a correlation here between life and light. And this is a correlation that we see in the Old Testament. God is the source of light and life. Again, the opening chapters of Genesis say that darkness was over the surface of the deep until God spoke the words, let there be light. When God spoke, he created a good world teeming with life. And the capstone was God's good creation of human beings. God has already connected Jesus with the creator God who shines light into darkness. Throughout the Old Testament, God continues to be the source of light uh, beyond the Genesis, let there be light. God leads Israel in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud during the day and by a pillar of fire by night. And in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah tells us that God led Israel by a pillar of fire to light for them the way which they should go. Otherwise, if they didn't have that light, they wouldn't be able to see. The psalmist describes God as covered with light as with a garment and says, It is you who light my lamp. The Lord God lightens my darkness. The light that God shines in the darkness is the source of salvation in the Psalms. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And God's light is equivalent with truth and is the source of life. And so the psalmist pleads, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. This is talking about the temple, the tabernacle, and then later the temple, the dwelling place. The light that God shines is to lead people to his dwelling place, the place where God dwells with his people. Now, John says that in Jesus was the life and the light of human beings. Jesus is the source of light that overcomes the darkness to lead people to God's dwelling place. And here, they may enjoy life with God. Here and throughout the rest of the gospel, John, as I mentioned, presents this light and darkness as opposites and presents people with a choice. Now that we're beginning to see the world as it is, now that we're seeing God for who he is, will you choose light? Will you live in the light or return to the darkness? As we continue in the prologue, John connects this backstory of creation to the gospel story that he's about to tell. Okay. He shows us how it's going to connect. He tells us what happens with Jesus, uh, or when Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone when he is in the world. And this is where I'm skipping down here to verse nine. He says the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Uh, And the verses that precede this, uh, we have a contrast with John the Baptist who bore witness to the light, but who wasn't the light. So now here's Jesus coming into the world as the true light. Now, John uses the word world here and throughout 
the gospel differently than we normally use it. In The Princess Bride, another family favorite, okay, you may know this movie. I might also recommend the book. The book is better than the movie. Uh, The villain, Vizzini, he keeps saying, inconceivable, every time the dread pirate Roberts accomplishes an impossible task as He's chasing them down. And so Vizzini's uh, sidekick, Inigo Montoya, finally says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Okay. So with John's gospel, it's important to understand the words that he's using because this situation can easily apply, and it can easily apply to the word world. We might think of the world as the earth or the earth and all the people in it, like uh, the whole world has come to Los Angeles for the Olympics. Okay, I think I saw that somewhere in a byline. In ancient literature, it can refer to the, even the whole material order. It can include the universe. But in John's gospel, the world is the earth and all of huma- fallen humanity that's hostile to God. So when you come across the word world in John, you need to think world equals Fallen humanity hostile to God. Okay? Humanity is enveloped in darkness because of sin and rebellion against God, just like the deep was enveloped by darkness at creation. God said, let there be light to illuminate the darkness and create that world teeming with life. In John's gospel, Jesus illuminates the dark, chaotic corners of humanity that are hostile to God in order to create new life in and among us. And so John goes on to describe two responses to Jesus' illuminating work. What we see here is that when Jesus comes and shines his light, he doesn't just show the world as it is and show God for who he is. He also shines his light on humanity and shows us for who we are. And that's not always very comfortable. So there are two responses to Jesus' illuminating presence in the world. First, in verses 9 and 10, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was in the world, a world that he himself created to be good, but that is now hostile. He came to this hostile world that had his stamp on it, like the mugs and dishes we have from St. Andrew's Pottery has the stamp of George the Potter on the bottom of them. He came to his own people, the Jews. But when Jesus flipped on the light, he showed them the world as it is, And God, for who he is, and human beings, for who they are, these familiar people preferred the darkness. And so they didn't know him, and they didn't receive him. I'm full of movie illustrations today. This is my last one, I think. I promise. Um, And this one comes from The Matrix, okay, which you may know. Um... In this movie, you know, computers have taken over the world. 
They've created a false virtual reality to keep people in bondage. And people think they're free, but actually they're in these pod-like tombs and their bodies are being sucked for energy. Okay. Morpheus is the leader of the group that's escaped from the Matrix, and he's fighting against the computers, and he contacts Neo, uh, whose mind the computers are still controlling at this point. And here's what Morpheus says to him. He says, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. It's this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the matrix is what Neo asks. Do you want to know what it is? And Neo nods dutifully, or else we wouldn't have the movie. The matrix is everywhere. It's all around us, even now in this room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on the television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It's the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? asks Neo. That you are a slave, Neo, like everyone else. You were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. And so Morpheus takes out two pills, one blue and one red. And, uh, and he says, um, this is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You go back to the darkness. Okay, back to your dreams, back to the monsters. I'm mixing metaphor, mixing movies here. Okay. <laughs> you take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole go- goes. Remember, I'm offer- all I'm offering is the truth and nothing more. Okay. Jesus, of course, doesn't dole out pills. Right? <laughs> he shines light on the truth about what it means to worship and serve God. He shines light on the truth about the world, about God, and about humanity in the world. What these verses, verses 9 and 10, show is that those who don't know or receive Jesus, it's like they're in these pod-like tombs. And they're returning to the darkness, preferring the monsters of their imagination to the truth. But it's different for others. And we read about this in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, there's a contrast between those who did not receive him, those who did receive him, who believed in his name. And I think this is defining further what it means to receive him. Receiving Jesus means to believe in his name. To all who did receive him, that is, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here we see the explosion of Jesus' creative work. This, I think, is exciting. Because John uses the same creation language here that he had used at the beginning of this passage. Remember, in the first three verses... We had read that all things were created through the word. Now in these verses, John says more about Jesus by saying that he, those who receive him, who believe in his name, are born or they're created. It's the same language. Okay? It can get lost in our English translations. They're created anew. 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I, I think we need to get this. That as John is presenting uh, creation as the setting of the backstory, it's not just to say, oh, look, Jesus is equal with God. But it's to show us the very foundation for Jesus' creative work in creating new life in humanity that runs throughout the whole gospel. This is Jesus' MO. This is what he does. And finally, Jesus says more about, or John says more about how Jesus, by his light, leads people to God's dwelling place, leads people along the path where we find truth and grace and life. And he explains this uh, in verse 14. He says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So remember, he said that this light came into the world. Now he expands on that. He tells us more of what that means and looks like. Jesus came into the world by becoming flesh, by the word becoming, the word that was in the beginning, becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Okay. The same word that was in the beginning and created the world to be good and human beings in it to be good later became flesh and dwelt among us in a world that had become fallen. The language here is tricky but important. The word for only son... And here in the, um, I have the ESV, and I think uh, here you have the ESV, says only son. Other translations might have unique son or only begotten son. Again, it's creation language, but it's unique, okay? Because Jesus isn't created like human beings are created. Jesus has existed, and so Jesus is unique. The word for only son is a, a mashup, if you will, of two words, only or unique, and born or become. So Jesus is the, the, the son who has come about uniquely. Okay? And we're talking about Jesus as he walked on the earth here. Jesus as he dwells among human beings. It means that Jesus is the unique son like no one else. And he's unique because he's the pre-existing word who became the fleshly world-dwelling word. It's a tongue twister. Okay. That's what makes him unique. No one else is like him. I mean, this is the Jesus as a human and divine mashup. And this is where the testimony of John the Baptist comes in. Uh, we've read about this a little bit in verses 6 to 8. We know that he testified to Jesus. Verse 15 tells us what he testified about Jesus. In verse six, uh, sorry, verse 15, we read that John bore witness about him and cried out that this is he of whom I said, like, I was talking about this guy, and look, there he is. And he is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It sounds a little bit like a riddle. So maybe there are parables in John, after all. So what John means is that Jesus was born, okay, in the flesh, uh, in his humanity, after he, John, was. And he came onto the Galilean scene after John did. John started his ministry first. But Jesus has a higher status 
because he existed before Jesus did. Sorry, before John did. From the very foundation of the world. So John the Baptist proclaimed the very thing that this gospel announces, that Jesus was in the beginning with God and was God. Jesus, the unique son, dwelt among us, hostile humanity. And this language, this dwelling language here, is also used. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery here. Uh, It is also used in the Old Testament for the dwelling in the tabernacle. It's used in both a noun form and a verb form. So the noun means to live or to dwell in a tabernacle. And its noun form uh, is used to actually refer to the tabernacle or God's abiding presence with his people. Especially when God uh, dwelled with with his people in the wilderness um, and traveled with them. But God's dwelling with his people was limited because he's holy and they were sinful and rebellious. John, here in these verses, reminds the audience that while Moses indeed saw God's glory, no one, not even Moses, had seen God's face. Moses saw God's back. That's as close as Moses got. You can read about it in Exodus 33. The only God, he says, he says, no one has ever seen God. And this is verse 18. Here I think we've got another riddle-like saying. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is in the Father's heart, he has made him known. And this only God language, this is the same language that is used earlier for the only son or the only begotten son. But here John says the only or unique God, the only begotten God. This is what he calls Jesus. Can we wrap our heads around this for a minute? No one has ever seen God, the only God, he's talking about Jesus here, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus, this unique God, because he's the pre-existing word, who is then also the fleshly world-dwelling word, okay, or uh, God or one, is the only one in whom holy heaven meets a hostile world. He is the one, then, who shines the light that brings people to God's dwelling place, shines the light along the path to God's dwelling place. And he does that because he himself is that dwelling place. And so later in the gospel, when Philip, one of the disciples, says to Jesus, Show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's in John 14, 9. He's saying, look at me. I am the one who lights the way to God. Worship according to John is not properly or merely centered in Jesus but it's more deeply and fully and profoundly centered in God because Jesus makes the Father known. Jesus illuminates the way. So where do we see the payoff of 
what we've seen in the prologue in the rest of the gospel. And I quickly want to highlight two episodes. I think first is in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And I want to mention this because uh, I think of all passages in the gospel, uh, it's some verses here that we're most familiar with. Uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, so he's a, a, a Jewish leader. He's a ruler of the Jews. So if anyone, we would expect him to see clearly who God is. But he comes at night under the cover of darkness because he doesn't want to know that, but he doesn't want anyone to know that he's coming to see Jesus. His cover of darkness, I think, points to his spiritual darkness. Jesus tells Nicodemus that a person must be born again to see the kingdom of God or to have eternal life. And here, I think in this passage, this is one of the few places that we read about the kingdom of God, that it's interchangeable with eternal life. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He doesn't see. And he thinks Jesus is talking about physical birth, like going back again into your mother's womb as if you could do that and being born again. But Jesus talks about a second birth of water and the spirit. Remember in the prologue, John had said that all who received him, all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. It's a new creative act that Jesus is doing, making new creatures. They're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And now in Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus, we see that it's the spirit who is the power that Jesus gives for this new creation. And we continue to see uh, teaching on the work of the spirit, not just the father and the son, but also the work of the spirit in this creative act among humanity. Then comes the famous verse of bumper stickers and billboards that we're probably most familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But let's hear the rest. And this is in verses 17 to 21. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. I hope you can see the themes from the prologue that just echo through this passage. They're themes of belief and unbelief, of light and darkness, of condemnation and salvation. God loved this sinful, hostile world and gave his son to illuminate the darkness, to illuminate what the world is really like, what God is really like, and what humanity is really like. And this is so that those who believe in him would have eternal life. This is the path to the dwelling place of God that uh, I read about in the Old Testament. Jesus says here, if you were listening carefully, that his purpose, though, in coming was not to condemn, but to illuminate the darkness. Okay, did you hear that? People condemn themselves by their response to Jesus. Jesus illuminates the way. 
And so again, John leaves people with a choice. It's a kind of choice that we see in this passage and throughout the whole gospel. Here's the truth to light your way. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to live in the light about the, the truth about God and the world and about humanity, about who you are? Or are you going to slink back into the darkness? Another passage, and this is quick, is Jesus' interaction with the crowd after he feeds them. This is chapter 6. And this is another famous story where Jesus multiplies loaves and fishes for a crowd. Uh, The crowd reacts happily. But after this, they ask Jesus for a sign like Moses feeding the Israelites in the wilderness. Of course, we're reading thinking, oh my goodness, really? They probably, though, want to assert Moses' authority by asking Jesus to perform a greater sign than he did. But they can't see that that's what he just did. Now, Jesus doesn't point this out. Instead, he explains that it was actually God and not Moses who performed that sign for Israel in the wilderness. And now God has gone and done it again, but to an extraordinary degree. The Israelites who ate manna in the wilderness, they eventually died. But now the bread that Jesus is offering, or that Jesus is, is eternal and for all people, not just Israel. And so Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Jesus doesn't replace God as the bread giver, but he's the Father's true, superabundant bread of eternal life for the world. And when the crowd presses for Jesus for clarification, he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, which points to his death and resurrection. After this... Many of Jesus' own disciples now, so not just the Jews, but Jesus' own disciples, they say, this teaching is too hard. And they turn back, and they no longer walk with him. They no longer follow him. When Jesus shines the light in on the world, on who God is and who they are, it's too hard. And they go back to the darkness. They don't like what they see. This isn't supposed to be what God looks like, and this isn't supposed to be what I look like. The 12 there, though, they're still there. And Jesus says to them, do you want to go away too? And Peter replies, I love this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is the source of light, light that leads to the knowledge of the truth. He is the source of light then that leads to belief and to eternal life. John contrasts light and darkness to present people with a choice. People in the first century and us, people now. This draws us to a decision. John poses pointed questions to us. Will we choose light or darkness? Will we believe in Jesus or not? And on that basis, will we secure our own condemnation or salvation? At the end of the gospel, John writes that his purpose in writing this gospel is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's chapter 20, verse 31. 
he's leaving us with this choice. To believe in Jesus is to live in an enlightened world about God, about the world, and about humanity. It's a world where we live exposed to God and also exposed to one another. I think, though, that there are still things that may keep us up at night, even though the monsters may have changed. When Jesus shines light into our hearts, into our lives, and in our communities, whether we're dealing with Jesus for the first time or whether we're dealing with Jesus and seeing his light for years, we may find sometimes that we prefer the darkness to the light. We may find that we don't like what we see. We had never imagined that God would look like this. There are still things that make us say, like some of Jesus' first disciples, this is a hard saying. And these things make us want to turn our backs and to stop following Jesus or not follow him in the first place and to slink back into the darkness. But John is relentless in presenting us with a choice. I think that's what you'll see as you walk through this gospel. If we turn our backs, then we're going to go back into a dark dream world in which we cannot clearly see, in which John says we're, we're actually blind. And blind people... It doesn't matter whether they have, have light or not. They can't, they can't see at all. I mean, that's science. What will truly satisfy our souls and calm our fears is life in the presence of this illuminating, life-giving God. In a sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis comments that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I guess I'd like to imagine that ignorant child as a child who either can't see or refuses to see what, uh, what God offers us in Christ. And so I want to ask myself, and I want to ask you all this morning, will we prefer the darkness when the light exposes truth about the world, about God, about humanity, about our own hearts that we don't like? Instead, let us now and continually say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the only one, the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Our good and great God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in creation and in your word and in your word made flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have opened our eyes and our hearts 
through the illumination that Jesus provides by, and that he has provided by living among us and by sending his spirit. As I prayed before, I pray again that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, to the work of your Holy Spirit, so that we might respond in faith, in belief, and follow Jesus unto eternal life. Help us to help one another, pointing each other to Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.